Obviously, um, the part of the gospel from Luke's 15th chapter that we just heard proclaimed by um, Father Vincent is, is, um, has a beginning that we heard last night and continues, um, and tomorrow night we'll talk more about that. But what we heard tonight is a little bit distressing. It's, it's part of the, the parable that is not very pretty. It's not very nice. It's, um, it's actually in some ways uh, hard because this, um, this boy is um, really someone who's deeply lost and that always affects us and touches us and leaves us rather distressed. But let's back up a little bit and just rem- <coughs> remember from last night that the opening question that I began with, that we began with really, you know, is what is God like? That's kind of the point of this mission. What is God like? What is God's being? What is God in his most interior self? What is God's name? And we found that Jesus gave us already two parables to kind of explain who God is and really who he is. The first image was that of the the, the bad shepherd who loses his sheep and then leaves his 99 out in the wilderness to go off and search for the the, the lost sheep. And, you know, on the face of it, objectively, he's really a poor shepherd. First of all, because he lost the sheep, and secondly, because he leaves the other 99 in the wilderness, you know, as possible, prey for some terrible animal that might eat them all up, sort of like a fairy tale, a big bad wolf or something. But we learned as we studied that little piece of parable that, in fact, Jesus is focusing on on that shepherd's extraordinary love for that sheep. He knows the sheep. He loves the sheep. He can't stand that the sheep is lost. And so he will move heaven and earth to find that sheep. And the sheep accepts being found right where it is, lost and all. The housewife with her little drachma, her gold coin, a full day's wage that she loses in the floor of her home, You know, she too can't stand the thought that she will have less to give to her family, less to feed her family with. And so she searches and searches and searches for that coin until she finds it. And like the shepherd, once she finds it, she invites everybody in to celebrate with her. She invites her friends as he invited his friends. And if you remember from last night, that's a key those friends. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees to whom he's speaking, you know, you've lost a lot of sheep. You've lost a lot of coins along the way. You're not doing your job as shepherds of Israel. But I've been finding them. I've been finding them and I've been eating with them, the tax collectors, the sinners, the women of ill repute. So rejoice with me that they are found and have come back to the Lord, come back to God, which, of course, an invitation they refuse. So, in a way, remember that Jesus is inviting these Pharisees to whom he's speaking to to get down off of their pedestals that they've made for themselves and to do what he's been doing, to search out the lost of Israel, to be good shepherds, to be good housewives, as God is, as he is. And that's where we're led tonight. Each one of these little parables, well, two little ones and one big one, is really the same story told in three different ways. And tonight we begin the first part 
of the third big story, the third big parable. It's the parable of the father with two sons. Tonight we're going to deal just with that first son of whom we heard in the gospel reading momentarily, just a, a few moments ago. You know, that boy, we don't know how old he is, the son, probably not too old, kind of acts like a kid who's just turned 21, maybe, or maybe 18, you never know. Um, we think we know this kid, don't we? You know, we've all had in our families, extended families, you know, a prodigal son. You know, we even use the word, oh, so-and-so is the prodigal son of the family, or the black sheep of the family, or whatever, the bad boy of the family. And, you know, we've, we, it's easy for us to say, okay, this kid is like those kids we've known in our own families, or in our own communities, our own parish. You know, the, the kid who, who makes all the poor choices, the kid who from the first time he could say no, just relished saying no it, two years old and has been saying no ever since to his mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, whomever, teachers. Or that 16-year-old kid who yells at his mom or his dad, I hate this family. I can't wait to get out of here. I can't wait to leave you all behind. It's it's terrible moments in families when that happens. Um, Black sheep are never easy to deal with. It's so hard to know. You know, how much do we love them? How much do we discipline them? How much do we hold them in? How much do we let them go? But we don't really know this particular kid, really. Because, you know, as we know, everybody has their own story. Everybody's an individual. And and this kid must have his own story. How did he get to this point where we find him in tonight's gospel story? And the sad part is we don't know. Jesus doesn't tell us what led up to this boy doing what he did to his dad. We just don't know. You know, how was he hurt when he was a kid? Or, you know, what kind of bad choices did he make? What kind of company did he fall into that led him to to do this terrible, terrible thing that he does to his father? We can't know the why of this kid's rebellious heart. But we can know, we can know what he is doing now, what's going on now in his mind and heart to a large degree, what's percolating inside this kid when he goes to his father. Not looking at it from a Western point of view. You know, we live here in the U.S., we live in this 21st century, uh, we're part of Western society, Western culture for the most part, in spite of our various other influences. But the Middle Eastern culture that this kid was a part of, that Jesus was a part of, you know, the cult, to a large degree, it still exists in much of the Middle East. Um, People who, you know, sociologists, anthropologists who travel uh, in that part of the world recognize these stories as, as very much the sort of thing that happens today. And so with their help, we can kind of recreate what was going on in this kid's Middle Eastern uh, mind so many years ago. Um, so we want to try to enter into his mind a little bit. So let's begin with the opening speech that the younger son gives to his father. He says to him, so he goes up to his dad. His father is a reason, probably a very wealthy man. 
must have land holdings, uh, wealth, home, animals, um, gets, he's a man of substance. So the son goes up to the father, and he says to him, you have these words in the little folder that you have, if you want to read along, but you're welcome just to listen, of course. He says to his dad, Father, give me the share of your estate that should come to me. Give me my inheritance, like right now. Now, this father is not ready to die. He's nowhere near ready to die. He's not an old, 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 old man who's on his deathbed. And the son comes up and says, Oh, Papa, you know, please, you know, it's time for you to go to God and, and it's time for you to assign our, uh, you know, our, our, the, the wealth that you've earned over the lifetime to, to me and my brother. So let's get this done. Let's bring in the lawyers and we'll get it all done so everything is good before you die. That's not the case here. That's not what's happening. This father is perfectly healthy. He's still vibrant. He's still vital. We'll know that from when we talk more about him and see him more uh, tomorrow. He's a father who could still run. So such a request in the Middle East. If a son were to go to his father who is still healthy and say, I want my share of the stuff. What he's saying to his father in no uncertain terms is, you are dead to me. You, dad mean nothing to me. I not only hate you, I wipe you out of my life. You are dead to me. This is such an extreme thing for someone to do, for a kid to do to his father, that researchers in the Middle East say never have they ever heard from any villager anywhere of a son actually doing this. When they ask him, have you ever heard of this happening? They say, no, it could never happen. No son, no matter how alienated, would ever go to his vibrant and vital and living father and say, give me my share of the stuff. You are dead to me. It's impossible in the Middle Eastern mindset. And therefore, Jesus is beginning this third story by shocking everybody who's listening. His disciples, the common people, the people of the land, and most of all the Pharisees. No one ever has heard of such a thing happening up till then and since then. So when he asks for his stuff, his inheritance, his share, he's not asking, he's demanding. And he's also also saying, I want none of the responsibilities that come with receiving my share of the stuff. He's asking for his inheritance early. But what comes with an inheritance is responsibility. This is deeply embedded in the Middle Eastern mindset. If I give you your inheritance, then you have the responsibility to guard it, protect it, build upon it for the next generation. With the inheritance comes the responsibility to protect it, to care for it, to build on it, to use it well. 
And he has nothing to do with that. He doesn't want the responsibility. He just wants the stuff. He wants the money that will come from selling his supposed share of the land and whatever else he gets. So this is a kind of disrespect and a kind of rebellion against his father, against his brother, against his kin, against his tribe, against his community. Because he's going to take a large part of the wealth of that family, that extended family, and the community, and walk off with it. This is really deeply, deeply, not just offensive. This is a violation of everything that's holy and sacred and important in this culture. And I, some ways I don't think it's too different from our own culture. Even as different as we are, as far away from that world as we live. You know, if this were to happen to any of us, we'd be shocked, we'd be stunned, we'd be heartbroken, we'd be bereft. And not just the money, not just the wealth. But a son or daughter of ours telling us in no uncertain terms, you are dead to me. So that's the mindset of this kid. He is completely self-absorbed. He's completely self-centered. He's completely irresponsible. He's completely autonomous, which is, you know, in our culture, we're kind of into independence and autonomy. But in their culture, everybody's dependent on everybody. Nobody goes off by their own. You always stick with your family, with your tribe, with your community. So he's not only telling his father that his father is dead to him. He's saying, my family is dead to me. My extended family is dead to me. My aunts and uncles, my grandparents are dead to me. My neighbors are dead to me. My tribesmen are dead to me. I'm on my own. So, he exerts his rights to the inheritance, but doesn't take to heart any of the fact that he's in doing so broken every relationship he has in the world. I mean, really broken. Not just hurt, not just offended, but absolutely broken and cut off. He's cut himself off from everybody. He's his own master, he thinks. He does not need his father, he does not need his brother, does not need his village. He can take care of himself by himself. So, kind of sounds like an 18-year-old in a way, maybe, after all. Um, So, how did a person in that time identify themselves? So, you go out into the world, and you... Identify yourself to whomever you come upon by saying, they say, who are you? And you would say, I am the son of so-and-so, from the village of so-and-so. That's how, that was your identity card. That's how people knew who you were and where you had come from. That gave you legitimacy. That gave you a family. That gave you a name. That gave you who you were. I experienced a little bit of this in Guatemala with my indigenous friends living up in the 
up in the mountains, the Mayans. And they, uh, it's, not, it's less now because of the influx of culture and cell phones and stuff, but the first time I was there 25 years ago or so, you know, if you'd ask them uh, who they were, they would give you their name, but they would immediately say, from Santa Catarina Ishtuacan. They would identify themselves by their village, and in fact, their clothes were all typical of their village. So you could tell, actually, where they were from by the kind of weaving that they had on their, their, their clothing. Um, and that's still, to a large degree, true. So when he cuts himself off from his father, from his village, from his town, from his kin, he's, t- he's destroying himself. He's completely emptying himself of his identity as a person. So this then, when it's all considered together, is a mortal act. He's killing his father, he's killing his brother, he's killing his family, he's killing his village. You're dead to me. You're dead to me, you're dead to me, you're dead to me. And he kills himself. He now is dead to himself. His old self, represented by his name and his place, gone. So, this is a mortal, a mortal act that he has done. Anyway. So what are the consequences? So this unimaginable choice that he's made that would never have happened in this culture, but for the sake of the story that Jesus tells, we have to use our imagination to consider it. So he gets his share of the stuff. He has to sell it quickly because he's got to get out of town because word is going to spread very quickly of what he's done to his father and his family and his village. So he takes the stuff. He sells it at fire sale prices. He's got to get the money as fast as he can. If you know anything about Middle Eastern culture, if you've ever visited there and tried to buy a rug in the Jerusalem market or something like that, or even a trinket, you've got to negotiate. You've got to sit down. You have to have a glass of tea. You have to have a little coffee. You have to talk. You have to tell where you're from before before you can make the exchange. He's not having any of that. He sells it whatever price he can get for it. And off he goes. And he travels, the words in the original Greek are he travels away from his own people. Jesus is underlined, it's probably an accurate reflection of the original Aramaic. He doesn't just leave. He travels away from his people. He travels away from his heritage. He travels away from his culture. He travels away from his religion. He travels away from himself. He can no longer say, I am the son of. I am from the village of. And what that makes him is a nobody. He becomes a wanderer with no name, no identity, no roots. And when he comes up upon somebody who might take him in and help him out, give him a night's rest, feed him some bread, 
First thing they're going to ask is, what is your name and where do you come from? And he can no longer answer. And they're just going to say, move on, buddy boy. So this is a really serious decision he's made as he leaves. He leaves his land. He leaves Israel. He heads out into pagan country, a foreign land. So he gets to this foreign land. It's a land without faith, religion, God, Judaism, his roots, his culture. Probably a land populated by, I don't know, Zoroastrians from Persia or Greeks from Greece or God knows what. And he's got a lot of money in his pocket. So what's he going to do with that money? Now, our first instinct, like his brother's first instinct, is when we hear the word, he wastes his money on dissolute living, is we think, aha, parties, girls, God knows what else, drinking. But we don't know that. Jesus doesn't tell us that. He doesn't tell us how he wasted his money. Um, Scholars figure that what he really did was that since he had no identity and since he had no name in that foreign land, he used the money to buy friends. Well, friends. So he uses the money to throw lavish parties and invite all his friends in with the neighbors, whoever he finds. Come on in, come on in. I got lots of food, I got lots of bread, I got big meals, I can put on a big table for you. Let's feast. And he can do that for a while. But remember, there's no money coming in. The money disappears slowly, maybe not so slowly. So as he squanders his wealth in this foreign land, he also knows something as that money, that wealth disappears. He's squandering the wealth of the people of Israel in the land of the pagans. And this was even worse. So for the Jewish people, there's one thing to waste your wealth, to dissipate your wealth on dissolute living in your own land. At least the money was staying there. At least it was staying among us, our own people, our own tribe. But if you dissipate it out there among the heathens, among the Gentiles, among the infidels, you're supporting them. They're giving our wealth to them. And that was an intolerable thing. So when that happened, the Jewish people had a special ceremony for somebody who did that. If they came back, having wasted their money in a foreign land, they had a very special ritual for them. It was called Kezaza. They would come back and there would be a special ritual to excommunicate them to dishonor them, to say you are not part of us ever again, not just because of what you did to your dad, not just because of what you did to us, not just because you took the money and ran, but because you wasted the money out there among the heathens, you are dead to us and don't even think about eating with us, drinking with us, 
socializing with us, you're out. And he knew then, once the money was gone, that he could never, ever go home again. Well, he could go home, but it wouldn't be home. There would be nothing there for him. They would receive him at the edge of the town, and they would excommunicate him in the most dishonorable fashion possible. Some of you might be about my age and remember that old television show used to come on after Disney, I think, on Sunday evening called Branded. Remember that? And the soldier who was supposedly supposedly done something bad, something cowardly, they take his his sword and they break it and they throw it on the ground and he's left just with the hilt. Remember that opening scene? Something like that. That's how bad it was. You are now out. You're excommunicated. So he now is really pretty dead. You know, once the money is gone, there are mortal consequences to that. Um, He no longer can buy his friends, can no longer feed himself. He can no longer go home without suffering that ceremony. So this has been a terrible thing for him and is getting worse. Once he's in that foreign land, once he's out of money, not only does he now face, what do I do now? News comes that famine is approaching. Things go from bad to worse, to worser for this kid. You know, the depths of his death just keep getting, his living death just keep getting worse and worse. So famine, just as it is today, but perhaps worse was about the worst thing that could happen to a society. There's no food. You know, everybody suffers. Everybody dies. We see images on TV of little children with distended stomachs and arms that have no muscle and flies uh, about their poor little eyes, infected eyes. And that's certainly a powerful image of famine in our world today. Today, at least, we have agencies that can rush in and try to alleviate the famine. We can see it on TV and sympathize and send money. In those days, there was no cell phone, no TV, no radio, no newspapers. You just had to suffer the famine by yourselves. And it was a terrible thing. It involved children dying, of course. It involved children who survived being brain damaged because of their lack of nutrition. It involved adults dying in great numbers in the streets. And then what do you do with the bodies? Who's strong enough now to carry them off to bury them? They don't get buried. It's a terrible, terrible, terrible thing. Famine was just about the worst thing that could happen. And so on top of everything else now, this kid is facing famine. And so you would think that at this point, the boy would say, okay, the kazeza ceremony is waiting for me back home, but at least there's food there. 
I can, you know, dig a ditch or I can go through the garbage cans. I can at least survive there. So let's go home, suffer the dishonor, and at least there, there's food, and I won't have to die. But he doesn't. He's so proud of himself and so full of himself that even the prospect of famine doesn't dissuade, it doesn't push him home. He's got a plan. He's going to save himself. Even in these dire straits, he's still calculating out his plan. I'm going to save myself, and this is how I'm going to do it. There's, there's somebody over there, there's a rich farmer over there who has some food, and he has some land, and I'm going to glue myself to him, is the word that's used in the original Hebrew. I'm going to glue myself to him, and I'll get work from him, and that way I'll be able to eat and survive. So he goes and he pesters the poor rancher, the poor farmer. And you can imagine the poor farmer. He's probably got tons of people after him all the time. Can I work for you? Can I come to your ranch? Can I work for you? You got food? Can I? And he's saying, no, you're, leave me alone, leave me alone, leave me alone. And this kid is so persistent that he finally gives in. And he knows he's a Jew. You can tell by the accent, the haircut maybe, who knows. He knows he's a Jew. He says, okay, I'm not going to tell you you can't come. But if you want to come and work for me, you're going to work with the pigs. Now, any normal, decent Jewish person would say, I'd rather die than have anything to do with a pig. If you know Jewish culture, Islamic culture, pigs are disgusting. They're disgusting in every level. I don't know that we have anything quite the same in our culture, an animal that is just disgusting to us. Uh, Spiritually disgusting, socially disgusting, they're dirty, they're smelly, they're they're everything. And it's it's in the Mosaic law that we can't eat this animal, we can't have anything to do with this animal. This kid, who's been raised a good Jew, says, okay, I'll go work with the pigs. Yet deeper into his self-imposed living death, see how mortal his actions becoming? He's so low now that he's willing to go and work with pigs to survive and avoid going home. So, anyway... So he's working with the pigs. The pigs are fed a kind of food that humans can't eat. They can digest stuff that we can't digest. So he's feeding the pigs he can't feed himself. He gets hungry and hungry and hungrier. And he says to himself, Oh, poor me. I wish I could eat what the pigs eat. Which is a way of saying... I wish I were a pig. As Jesus is telling this story, everyone's going, ah! The disgust. Spanish has a... Well, I probably shouldn't use that in church. Maybe, I don't know if it's good or bad. It's a wonderful expression in Spanish. Uh, 
um, can I say it? Me da asco? Me da asco? Yeah? He is, he is now so low that he's turned himself into the most despicable, disagreeable animal on the face of the earth, a pig. That's how low he's gotten. And it's only then, it's only then, that he finally says to himself, okay, I need to come up with another plan. This one isn't working very well. So the story says he comes to his senses. He gets smart. He finally says, okay, this is, I'm done. I'm done. His shame at having become a pig is now greater than his shame of having to go home and face his people and excommunication. But and this is where we get tricked by the story because of our Western mentality. So he comes up with this plan. And the plan is, he comes to his senses and he thinks to himself or says to himself these what seemingly are lovely words. How many of my father's hired workers have enough to eat, but here I am dying from hunger. I shall get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Treat me as you would one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. And we're all saying, Yay! The boy is going home. He's come to his senses. He's going to apologize to his father. And he's going to, he's so humbled now that he's going to be, I, I don't even deserve to be your son. I'll just be one of your hired hands. And we're all thinking, hooray, the story has finally turned. The repentance and has starting to happen. You know, he's, he's seen the light. He's going to go home. This is all going to be fine again. Except for a couple of things. Our presumption that he has really changed is not founded in the story itself, as Jesus tells it. If we listen closely to his little speech to himself, he expresses only a desire to eat. He does not express any remorse at having hurt, killed his father, and shamed his village. He does not say, I must go and reconcile with my father whom I have desperately harmed. And my brother, and my cousins, and my community, my synagogue. He does not express an iota of regret for having wasted the family fortune in a foreign land. If he were repentant, those two things would be up first to the thing that he would say to himself. Oh my God, what have I done to my father, my brother, my family, my village? Oh my God, what have I done with the wealth of my family? 
He'd be crying if he were repentant at that. But all he says is, I'm really hungry and I'm tired of the pigs, so I'm going to go home. His plan then is this. This is his plan for saving himself. He'll go back, he'll endure the kezeza, he'll um, have his father give him a job with the tradesmen. That's the guys that the father hires to do the work around the farm or the ranch. And he'll learn to trade. He'll learn how to carpenter. Or he'll learn how to build something. Or he'll learn how to take care of cattle or sheep or whatever. He'll learn a trade. And slowly but surely he'll work. And sometime before the end of his life he'll be able to pay off the debt of all the money he took. And then he'll be readmitted into society. Everything will be fine. That's his plan. It's a self-help financial scheme. It's not a plan to heal the broken relationships. For him, the issue is bread and money. Not his father's broken heart. So let us not be duped by the nice words. But what about that little part of his speech to himself? It seems like that's the little part where he says, I've sinned against heaven, which is sinned against God, and against you, my father. Doesn't that indicate that there's repentance there? We don't hear it, but the Pharisees and the people standing around, the people of the first century heard something very, very awful in those words. He takes the words of Pharaoh talking to Moses after nine plagues, when his people are close to rebellion because of the plagues, And Pharaoh says to Moses, trying to trick him, Oh, Moses, I have sinned against heaven and against you. And every Jewish person in the first century knew those words as words filled with deceit and hypocrisy and trickery. So we don't hear it. We think, oh, the lovely boy, he's changed his heart. He's going to go back to his father and he's going to bow before him and say, oh, I sinned against God and I sinned against you. Nope. They're all saying, as they stand around listening to Jesus tell this story, that rat, that rascal, that liar, that cheat, that duplicitous little I'm not going to say it in church. That Pharaoh. That's what this boy is doing here. He's trying to trick his father through this false humility and false sense of repentance that's not there. He's trying to trick his father, manipulate his father into allowing him to go and work with the tradesmen. 
Oh, I won't be your son anymore, but I'll just be your little tradesperson over here. So there's no conversion in the story up to this point. Let's see. For his plan to work, he needs the father's approval. His speech is a manipulative attempt to get the father to take him on as one of his tradesmen. So the boy sees these outcomes if the plan for self-salvation, self-redemption works. He'll end up living with the tradesmen, not his father or his brother. That saves him the pain of living with his own family members. That's pretty good. That's a bonus. Um, As a craftsman, he'll learn a trade. He'll work, earn money, eventually pay back the debt and be redeemed by the community. And thirdly, um, the third thing about this is that he's looking not to reestablish the son-father relationship. He only wants to restore a servant-master relationship with his dad. And as you all know, you know, um, working for your dad and working for a distant boss in New York are two very different things. And this tension between a father-son relationship and a master-servant relationship is really one of the great tensions in the scriptures. How do we relate to God? It, it's it's all through, it's kind of subtly within all the scriptures. It's within the New Testament. It's even in our religious life now. Am I a servant of God or am I a son and daughter of God? I just work for the guy. Or is there a real love relationship there? For this boy, he doesn't care about the love relationship. He doesn't care about the father relationship. He just wants his dad's seal approval so he can get back to work. No reconciliation involved. There's one final thing in the story before we move on to the just a few final comments. Um, in the story, you may have heard the boy say twice, I will get up and go. He says it in his little speech, I will get up and go to my father. And then... As the narration happens, he gets up and goes to his father. It's a poor translation into English. A better translation would be, I will arise and go to my father. He arises and goes to his father. That word arise is not an accident. Jesus chooses that word Very, very carefully. I will arise and go to my father. Who else in the gospel story arises and goes to his father? But this arising and going to his father is the absolute opposite of Jesus' arising and going to his father. It's the absolute opposite. Why? Because he's saving himself. It's his scheme. It's his plan. There's nothing redemptive about it. 
He's not relying on anyone else to save him. It's a fake rising. He could care less about his father. And that's pretty much where tonight's story ends. We're going to pick up tomorrow. So, here we have this guy who, in a very real way, through his own choice, has killed himself. Or at the very least, just as bad, turned himself into a pig. And he's going to go home and he's going to fix it on his own terms because he's hungry, belly hungry. So there's a few things I think as we listen to this sad part of the story. I mean, it's distressing. It's hard to hear. It's hard to talk about it even in a way. The sad part of the story. You know, there's... there's it's really easy to say, thank God I'm not him. Thank God I never did that in my life. Thank God I love my mom and my dad. And yes, indeed, thank God. But these stories are not just meant for the Pharisees on their pedestals. They're also meant for us. And every character has something to teach us. Even if the identification isn't one-to-one. For some of us, it may be. We may have had this kind of experience in our lives. But for a lot of us, me, I, you know, I was a good boy when I grew up. I never did anything wrong, most of the time, that they found out about. You know, I was, you know, we had there were eleven of us, and I was, I was one of the. My dad used to say in my in his old age, Kevin, we hardly knew you were around most of the time. You know, it was, a, it was quiet. I go to my room and escape the commotion of. Family life. You know, I never rejected my parents in a big way. Although I remember, I remember I was in seventh or eighth grade. And it was confirmation, I think. And I was dressed up in my little seventh or eighth grade suit. And my mom, I had gone to church with my mom. And to get there ahead of time. To get lined up, you know, and all that sort of stuff. And my other classmates were in the parking lot. And as we got out of the little Volkswagen and started across the parking lot, my mom reached for my hand. And I saw my classmates and I pulled my hand away. That's kind of a prodigal son moment. It's awful. I think about it now and I think, what did she feel? Mom, I'm so sorry. So anyway... Here's a few things for us to think about. Do we not sometimes misunderstand or underestimate or undervalue that word mortal when we talk about our behavior, our actions, our deeds? You know, a lot of the times we take the power out of those words mortal sin by attributing it to just about anything. Gosh, I missed Mass on the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. Mortal sin, I better go to confession. Um, it, it's not... That's important, yes. 
But it's nothing in comparison to what this boy did. Mortal sin, mortal acts, mortal deeds are so much more. It's where we, in a kind of absolute way, say, you're dead to me, to the people we should be closest to, or to God himself. That's mortal sin. Sin that kills our relationships with God or our neighbor or our family, our kin. I don't need God. God, you're dead to me. I don't need you, my neighbor, my brother, my sister, my dad, my mom. You're dead to me. Saying no to relationship, to communion, to breaking bread, that's, that's where you start getting into mortal actions and deeds. And that can come on slowly, over years of taking care of ourselves first, or it can be something more immediate. A true examination of conscience is not just a listing of sins, venial and mortal. It's taking into account the quality of my communion with God and my neighbor, my relationships. How many people through the course of my life are now dead to me because of my choice? Is God dead to me? Um, Mortal sinfulness is walking away from our people, walking away from our God, and ending up without any identity, without any name, without any heart, without any soul. Second question worthy of reflection, I think. Are we simply servants of an almighty God, way up there in the clouds? Who's looking down on us, who's evaluating our actions, telling us what to do and what not to do. Ten Commandments, everybody. And ready to punish us if we fail. And who could care less if we get lost? Are we servants of that kind of a God as we imagine him? As the Pharisees imagined him? Our life mission is to do whatever God the Almighty tells us to do or acknowledging our weakness, our failures, the dark side inside all of us, be a true son and daughter of a father slash mother God who loves us and loves us and loves us like the good shepherd or the woman in the, in the house with her lost coin. Um, sometimes I think when we come to confession or sacrament of reconciliation or in our own private prayer and we say, Oh God, I'm sorry. 
it can sound sort of like um, one of those saris in a marriage that isn't really a sari. <laughs> you know, you know. Why don't you pick up your socks? Oh, I'm sorry. Drop more socks down. <laughs> I'll try to do better. Not really. Um, or in our parishes and our, our our own family. Um, the real humble expression of sorrow. So, so this kid says, "I'm sorry" to his father. But it's not true. It's not real. It's manipulative. Get the father to do something for me. Our sorries, especially to God and especially to the people we're most in love with, can't be manipulative. There has to be simply humble, sorry, I goofed up. I failed. I hurt you. I am so sorry. No manipulation. Okay, if I say this, things will be better like right away. You know, we can put our problem over here, park it over here for a while. Anyway, um, those are some things you can kind of think about a little bit based just on this part of the story. So tomorrow evening, we'll see how this boy's plan at self-redemption comes off its rails as soon as his broken-hearted father spies him coming down the road. Father Vincent said earlier today, he always imagined the father sitting in his window, waiting, 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 waiting for that boy to come home. It's a beautiful image. Um, of a father's love. So, we're going to have a few seconds, a few moments, a little bit of quiet, maybe a hymn, and then a few uh, intercessions, and then we shall feast. Okay? I think there's some nice cookies over there.